Alright, so March has really been about matches. Match, 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 match. I mean, you've been paying attention, right? Have you not? Yeah, anyway. Anyway, welcome to Parlor Tricking with CD Madia. My name is CD Madia. As I said, much, 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 muchness in March. That's what we've been seeing. So I thought I could bring on some guests to help us understand the protest culture, the protest nation that we are, the language we use when we protest. Now, we had this conversation in the middle of March, but I'm bringing it to you now at the end of the month as we wrap up the month, just to reflect on who and what we are and where we are going. My two guests this week is Rukhoto Fetsi Chikani and Dr. Ibrahim Harvey. This, of course, is episode three of season three of this politics podcast that's brought to you by Eyewitness News. Take a listen to how they make sense of who and what we are and our language of protest and how we engage with our democracy and the state. So... South Africa is an interesting place, and we always say that a day in politics is a lot in this country. But if you've been watching any of the news bulletins that we cover, if you're watching television, South Africa is also a protest nation. Mm. We pride ourselves in being a protest nation. But if you've been watching the start of 2023, you might have seen what's happening at the universities. I complain that that picture is year in, year out. That's something needs to give. You've watched now Nihau demonstrating, particularly outside the hospitals, blocking those who don't want to participate in a strike. This is now over wage talks with government. Watching what's happening outside of our hospitals where there's blockages, where people can't go in, doctors who want to work, nurses who want to work. Most importantly, patients who need assistance have also been blocked. You've heard the health minister, I think, saying that this particular demonstration has also cost the lives of some patients seeking medical attention. You've heard about SANDF being deployed to now assist. And that, in essence, is the state of our nation. So this conversation, as we mark Human Rights Month, Human Rights Day, is about that. Mind you, the right to protest is protected by our constitution. Now, the right to protest is a fundamental right in South Africa and serves as a bedrock to our democracy. The constitution of the Republic of South Africa confirms the right to protest. This right is envisaged in section 17 of the constitution. Everyone has the right to assembly, to demonstrate, to picket, and to present petitions. This right is regulated by the regulation of Gatherings Act 205 of 1993. The RGA works on the basis that citizens and organizations have a right to protest and then set out the circumstances in which this right may be exercised. That is from the Legal Resources Center and explaining what it is. I've brought on two guests in this episode to help us understand our psyche as a nation when it comes to protest. My first guest is Rukhoto Fetsi Chikani, co-editor of Protest in South Africa, Rejection, Reassertion, Reclam- and Reclamation. He also, of course, that name you'll remember from the Fismas Fall protest at UCT some years ago. So we'll speak a little bit about your protest and a little bit later on I'll be joined by Dr. Ibrahim Harvey, who's also an independent writer, former trade unionist, who's also wrote, spoken about um, the culture really of protest protest. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so for having me. So you've got this book where you've assessed protests over the past 20 years. Yeah. My first question really is, what stands out? Over 20 years of protest, what stands out for you? Yeah, so one of the things that you would expect to come out of this is that people protest primarily against the state, 
and that people protest because of a, this notion of relative deprivation, right? That I have someone has something that I don't have, and the difference between us not having the same thing is quite arbitrary. And that's what you would expect, that those who are stuck in poverty, inequality, or advocating for change or advocating for service delivery within their communities would be the ones primarily protesting. What we find out is that protest culture in this country is highly nuanced and very complicated, that you have people who are protesting against the state, you have people who are protesting against their local municipality, that you have people who are protesting against political parties that they'll still vote for, you have people who protest within a community. So communities who protest against each other because both of them are essentially competing for basic services themselves. You have people who are protesting against uh, big oil companies who want to do oil exploration off our coasts. Um, and those types of protests move across rural and urban areas, across racial divides. And what we're trying to highlight with this book is that if we simplify this idea that protest is only by the most marginalized of society, we then completely ignore the potential power of protest that everyone is experiencing and everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are actively putting out into the public sphere, which is why we have so many protests. And the book kind of, each chapter deals with all these different dynamics. Why is it though, it feels like we've our protests have intensified over the years in terms of volatility and mm. violence? Question I'll probably ask Dr. Harvey as well is that the language itself um, that we choose to protest, because it's multiple ways to protest. Mm. As you said, it's quite nuanced as it is. But the one thing that stands out is the violence as a characteristic of what protests look like in our country. Yeah, so I think it's always been volatile. Um, I think South Africans have a short-term memory in terms of violent protests, right? So you can go all the way back down to the early 2000s when you had a lot of social movements forming up against the state, right? Whether that's the anti-privatization organization, whether it's the Soweto Electricity Commission, I think they used to call themselves, but all of them saying that, okay, we've given you guys six years. You've, had, <laughs> you've been given six years and we still haven't gotten basic services. And you have this new group of social movements who are agitating for the state. And the state would repress those voices, right? But we forget about that. Then you fast forward a couple of years later and we have the big moment of Andreas Tatani's death, right? Someone died at the hands of the police. We then forget about that. We then forget that xenophobic protests in this country that turned violent for the first time happened in 2008, yes. right? So we're now over a decade. Then we get further on, we get to Maragana. After Maragana, we get to Fismas Fall. We have been experiencing violent, volatile protests over the last 20 years, but the public imaginary almost limits that or chooses to forget. And maybe that's a coping mechanism. Maybe, I want to actually understand yeah. <laughs> that, Frank, because you're right. When I think about the xenophobic violence, I think yeah. 2008, I think 2015, yeah. I think, geez, last year we had that conversation all over again, and we keep coming back to it. But we move on very quickly. Very 2021, quickly. Yes. unprecedented in South Africa's democracy. We hopped along as if it never happened. Yeah, so we have. Why does that happen to us? Maybe I actually want you to delve in a little bit into that too. Yeah, so it, it is this fascinating thing to kind of watch. Of we'll use COVID. So when COVID and the lockdown starts, you have a precipitous drop in the amount of protest activity, and that's because people We're are not. We're, We're at, at home. Lockdown, yeah. Then what happens? Almost six months after the lockdown, if not four months you have this rapid spike of protest activity across the country, regardless of the lockdown conditions, yes. almost to the highest levels in the world at that point, right? But the country kind of pushes on. You then have the July unrest, which is, for all intents and purposes, an attack on the state, 
right? A fundamental attack against the state, um, disorganized. Uh, there might be a smoke-filled room. I don't want to speculate yeah. about that. <laughs> but you have you this, these, yeah. you've got this systematic attack on the state that is galvanized by people and almost 300 people die. And two weeks after that, the country pushed on as if nothing had happened, right? And a really good example of that is I had a friend who called me, lives in the UK, and he gives me a call in the middle of the unrest and he says, are you okay? Mm. And I said, clearly we have not talked in a while because I live in Ilovo. This protest isn't coming to Ilovo. At all. The suburbs are safe. The suburbs are safe. So there's a lot of very influential pockets of South Africa who influence the public sphere who don't get exposed to the rampant protest activities in the country. So they don't physically see it. They don't physically ex experience it. But they control the narrative of the country. They control the, the zeitgeist of the country, right? Mm. If I was to tell you that people don't fully understand inequality in the country, if I was to tell you that if you earn right now 22,000 rand, you're one of the top 5% income earners in the country. Which is tragic because that's actually nothing <laughs> right? in this but, economy. But yeah. we, can't, we can't physically manifest that in our minds. We can't mm. comprehend mm. what that actually looks like. But for the vast majority, they do. And this is not to say that everyone protests who is marginalized. We now know that that's not the case. But we know the potential is there. And we also know that the potential for, for protests to become, not turn violent, but to become violent is quite easy in this country. Um, so it's easy to forget because you're not exposed to it. Makes me think of Jill, uh, Jill Scott Heron. I always forget his name. The revolution will not be televised because the middle yes. class is not clocked into the struggles of the poor. Yeah. How do we compare to global trends? Are we living in war times? Because sometimes I think, as you said, we're coping through what should be identified as a war. Yeah. When I look at even our crime stats, I think this can't be normal. Yeah. Yet we are hopping along, as I said. Yeah. Um, how do we compare to the rest of the globe? Yeah. So we, we, if events that happen in our country happen in other countries, which they have, those countries implode, right? So if you had a July unrest, there's an equivalent of the July unrest, and maybe not an equivalent, but we can compare the two. Sri Lanka. Now, we didn't storm the president's office, but what sparked, according to someone that I'm a colleague with, who was on a panel speaking about this, what sparks the Sri Lankan moment is that they finally had 12 hours of no electricity. And I thought, well, if it's 12 hours, <laughs> why have we not done it yet? Yeah. Right? When we compare internationally, our numbers are some of the highest in the world when it comes to protest activity on a daily rate. How you calculate protests can move the number up and down, right? whether it's service delivery, who gets to go, if the police record protest activities, they count everything. If you're the ISS up in Pretoria, they just count service delivery activity. So it really depends. But what we do know is that we're the highest in the world, but we're not unique across the world. That's the thing, right? So um, one of the chapters in our book actually does this comparison of what is happening in the global South vis-a-vis -vis South Africa. And what we see mm. is that these strong similarities, protests happening in Eastern Europe have strong similarities to what's happening in South Africa. Protest activities that's happening in America have strong similarities to South Africa. And one of the biggest differences that we have is that there's certain institutions in our country that protect the protests from becoming overwhelming, right, on a consistent basis. July was that first time where it really became so so immense that state security couldn't control it. But we've got institutions that keep people placated. We also have a massive difference compared to other countries. Our inequality can't be matched by any other country. And the ability for those who have and those who don't have to be almost immune to when the country sneezes, 
right? So when the rest of the country sneezes, this particular group does not catch a flu, if that makes sense. It goes back to that issue of middle class that you pointed out. Yeah. I want you to talk to me about the institutions that protect or prevent protests from spilling over. Because what are... I'll, I'll talk about it next. Let, let's just speak about institutions yeah. first. I want to speak about attitudes too, because at some point I want to be able to compare South Africans and their attitude towards their governance, their government versus our neighbors in Zimbabwe. But first, let's speak about the institutions that yeah. prevent protests from actually spilling over. Yeah. So what we forget, so why we named the book Rejection, um, Reassertion, Reclamation was that what we found out was that there's a lot of South Africans who fully participate in the democratic protest and um, pro- democratic process. That protest isn't seen as some sort of antagonistic tool towards the state. Okay. That protest has been viewed as one of our democratic tools that we can utilize the and the democracy. easiest one to participate. So people don't view it as an attack against the state. They, they might be antagonizing the state, but they don't view it as like some sort of warfare against the state. Really people are yeah. exercising their democratic right. And that comes to that reassertion, right? We're utilizing public participation mechanisms such as protests to reassert our, our voices. The reclamation is we're also using protests to reclaim certain services that we know we're supposed to get, certain democratic rights that we know we're supposed to get. Um, there's a really good article written, written many years ago by Susan Boyson, who's also one of the authors yes, on the book. Yes, I love Professor Boyson. Yeah, yeah, who talks about the brick and ballots, that people don't view protest as a substitute for voting, if that makes sense. Yes, now, actually, yes, because they, they still participate in both elements of democracy. As much as I often say... I don't think South Africans are fully participants yes. participating in their democracy. As you're pointing out, this is actually one of the ways to participate exactly in democracy. Exactly that. Now, the problem is mm. that was written quite a while ago. And it would be interesting to see what it looks like now with the increasing numbers of people who are actively not participating yes. in electoral elections. And that picture might be changing. But what we do know for now is that people don't view it as a substitute. They might abscond and be like, I'm not going to vote, but they don't put protests as some sort of lower than voting. But let's speak (laughs) about the attitudes, you know. I always find it interesting that South Africans are able to outright express their anger towards government. A minister, Becky Tele, will be speaking out in public and will be told where to get off easily. I want to compare this to our colleagues in Zimbabwe, Mm. where they can tell our government where to get off easily too. Yes, I've been in Zimbabwe where they've been annoyed, pissed off with the way South Africans <laughs> carry themselves the government, and they will express it quite strongly. Mm. And in the same breath, you ask about them and Nangagwa and their own it government, and they become meek, and they change completely. What is that? Um, your assessment of the way they relate, as opposed to, to their states, mm. and what that says about even the way we carry ourselves, um, and, 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 and our relationship with the state, I suppose. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give two examples. One is I could right now tweet at the president and say horrible, horrible, horrible things. They do it every day. And I could do do it and leave that digital trail there knowing very well that no one's going to come to my house in the middle of the night and I disappear. Right. We South Africans fully appreciate the idea, at least I believe they appreciate the idea, that if I say something negative towards the state, I won't disappear. Vis-a-vis other countries that are more authoritarian, you can disappear, and there's a history of people disappearing. Mm. Another good example that I like using is 
maybe I mustn't talk about it so openly. When we Go found, <laughs> when we found the gates of Parliament open, right, and were protesting at the seat of Parliament, every single MP sitting there, all of cabinet sitting there, I was once told that if you guys had walked into the chambers, right, it would have been considered as a coup at that point, mm. right. But that can happen, and the state rightfully arrests us because they rightfully arrest yes. us. I think it's they a then, of power there, yeah, right? it's, there, a, it's yes. power. Like you can't just walk up onto parliament at least in my mind you should be able to but that is gone we'll discuss that another day <laughs> but then they arrest me and they charge us with treason right mm, mm. in any other authoritarian state that treason trial or that treason charge wouldn't have disappeared they would have ran with that yes and they would have said we're going to make an example of you right but that's an example of the judicial system essentially saying you know what, there could be a temptation, right? Because there was a moment, and I write about this in my previous book, there was a moment where everything was very, very jovial with the police officers. Everything was really, really nice. That's also a part of our culture. Yeah. I mean, as a journalist who's kind of protest, yeah. you go through moments where everybody's cool with everyone. Everyone and is cool. Next thing, it's there's a phone call. It's, there's yeah, always yes. a random phone call that is given, right? So there's a tenacity, no, not a tenacity, but there's a proclivity for the state to essentially ramp the seriousness up of an issue. But we have other institutions that in, disenable them to take it too far. Right. And when they do go too far, you have moments like Marikana, you have moments like last year. Right. And I think there's that interesting balance. But the number one issue is that people don't disappear when they ventilate against the state. Mm, mm. Actually, I wanted to hang to and I want to bring in Dr. Ibrahim, Ibrahim Harvey into the conversation. Dr. Harvey is, as I said, an independent writer and analyst and author of The Great Pretenders, Race and Class Under the ANC Rule, which uh, won a South African Literary Award. He's also a former unionist. Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to keep you around so you can also participate in this conversation. Dr. Harvey, I just want to start off with the Nihal protest. As a former trade unionist, watching what's been unfolding in the country over the past few weeks. What is your sentiment? What is your take? No, uh, the, the bottom line, and just very, very briefly, is I, I wholeheartedly support uh, the Nihawa strike and the uh, legitimate wage demand, even 10%. You've got to take into account that they were denied, the, the ANC government engaged on the 2021 last leg of a three-year uh, public sector wage agreement. In the midst of uh, the devastating impacts of COVID, they've never forgotten that. So uh, whether technically they were right to break from the uh, negotiations and to launch this strike and everything that happened is another matter, you know, and certainly the intimidation and violence, you know, which uh, is really uh, unfortunate. But uh, so you, the analysis will distinguish basically between the legitimacy of the demands, you know, and how the NC government has been treating broadly the public sector unions. And it's very interesting because of all the public sector unions in Nihau, in, in Kosatu, Nihau was closest to the ANC. So I think uh, because they bore the brunt of the COVID, you know, and uh, you could see uh, how many nurses lost their lives and, you know, the public sector, I mean, the public hospitals uh, uh, crisis, particularly during that was severely affected. I think that's why Nihau has come forward as a more militant. And in fact, they were behind the, when Gwedi Mantash was in, twice in two successive days rejected and prevented from speaking at the Kosatu Congress in September last year, it was largely led by Nihau. So now Nihau has got a, a huge thing, you know, they feel they've been betrayed basically by the ANC government sure. because they've 
been one of the more loyal supporters of Pasatu affiliates for the ANC. And so basically that's it, you know, but, uh, you know, public sector workers are really up in arms. I think you're going to have uh, the ANC certainly dropping not just below 50%, but I, I look at 40, 45%. The public sector workers are, have never been more painfully aggrieved with the ANC government than they are currently. And so you need to see the, the uh, Nihawa strike uh, besides the unfortunate, uh, you know, things that happened there and uh, the legitimacy. In fact, if you heard the Public Servants Association is not even wanting to settle at uh, at seven percent, which is the, the 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 currently the inflation rate. They're looking at a, at an increase above seven percent. We don't know what it will have to be, but yeah, there's a massive context, you know, uh, which uh, I think explains the public sector and Yahoo's anger with the ANC government. I think that's legitimate, but is that reason enough to block patients from getting help from the hospitals when they're trying to access medical facilities? I want to speak a little bit about the language that they've chosen. You speak about how militant they've been, and I think it's also true. I think they're dealing with an arrogant government who in the political space they've supported, but is that enough to quantify the the, the 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 language they've chosen to express their anger, where, as the minister said, some patients have lost their lives because of the demonstrations. You know, I deal at length with what you're asking now. It's obvious, rather obvious, you know. I mean, bear in mind that no uh, strike is, is a Sunday picnic, firstly. And it was very chaotic, uh, especially how essential workers were drawn in and how it affected operations and, 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 and patients, et cetera. There's a line to be drawn between, as I indicated, if you heard me, between the legitimacy of the wage demands and the anger and the, the tactics and the violence and the intimidation and the language you speak about. In fact, the language is, is of secondary importance to me. If you look at what had happened, the number of people who died and the conduct, reprehensible, chaotic, you know, very disorderly, unlawful, lots of stuff. So that is uh, that is the biggest uh, downfall, you know, the biggest negativity of the strike that that took place. But fortunately, they've returned to the bargaining table and the strike stopped, you know. Um, mm. uh, but remember, uh, go go and see what Samu did, how Samu trashed the streets and how violent they. So the public sector unions have been in the forefront of a renewed militancy in, in the trading movement and Kosatu in particular. And you have to see, look at the conditions. You know, you're talking sure. about the, the protest capital of the world. In fact, it didn't start later. It started in June before in the free state. That is what the, there are many causes, contributory factors to, to protest. But the fact that we in uh, the protest capital of the world is largely 70 to 80 percent because of the black township protests. I can accept you know? that. Dr. Harvey, let me, I want you to speak about the, the townships. But before then, is there anything that government could have done differently in handling how? Um and keep in mind that you keep hearing that there is simply no money. Um, government's been accused of being arrogant mishandling really and obviously reneging on its promises could it have done anything differently yes it was very provocative how the hell do you start with a zero percent one percent and then went to three percent that is where they started and this is what what angered people you know and i mean they were not even at, at half the inflation rate and then they ignored uh, the impact which the reneging of the uh, 2021 leg of the wage agreement 
had on 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 workers it's terrible you know and but they made sure that they uh, uh, did not forfeit any increases I'm talking about the public uh, the the government officials you know senior public officials but the workers who bore the brunt in now in, in particular had to be uh, you know i mean can you believe uh, even a 3% uh, given what has happened in the past in the the worst cost of living crisis ever in the history of not just post-apartheid South Africa, but South Africa on the whole is what has happened now. So it's terribly insensitive. The ANC has really, they have uh, the main cause for this strike, near our strike even, uh, is, is, is the conduct of the ANC government. I mean, it's, it's uh, in many articles in the media, you'll find this there for the past couple of weeks when analysts and commentators have turned to analyzing you know, what has happened, uh, and, and especially now lately, the, the, the Niawa strike, all the blame, 95% more um, overwhelming lies with uh, the state, you know. Dr. Harvey, can you just give me... Mm. Yeah. Dr. Avi, just give me an assessment of your reading. You know, the NC's moved over the years of the NC's reaction to protests. You know, there was a time where the excuse was, well, they're jealous of how much we've done for others. There's a different excuse at all times as to why we are seeing particular protests unfolding in our country. Um, a lot of this has to do with just an unequal landscape that is South Africa. But your general reading of the assessment of how the NC's moved from an arrogant attitude, I think, when it says, well, they're jealous of what we've done for others, to a point where you hear about things like like a, a rainbow, a color revolution from Guadalajara Touch at some point. Just your reading of their, their handling of protests over the years as they've intensified. It's been dismal, you know. And, you know, it reminds me of what Mandela said. You must not forget, he was really poignant, I think, looking into the future and seeing the probability, although he bore some responsibility. The neoliberal policies which govern basic services, this is the area that I study, is primarily the reason for the fact that we're the protest capital of the world. But Mandela said to the black masses, if the ANC does to you or the Nationalist Party do, does, then you must do to the ANC what you did to the Nationalist Party. And indeed, this is what uh, people in the townships in particular you know, the dynamics on uh, at Nedlek or Saudi, the trade unions is a very different thing. The dynamics in the townships and without leaders, and you just see the spontaneous eruptions of violent protests, you know, uh, for, for almost uh, 20 years now. This has been the biggest gripe and the biggest problem and weakness facing. In fact, that's the reason why the ANC lost the power house of production. That's why they lost Twani, uh, Joburg, uh, Ukereleni. In, in 2016, and again, can you believe it? One would have thought they learned. They lost it again in 2021. And if you if you want to see where people are beginning to wake up now, out of the slumber, you know, is to look at the municipal results of 2016 and 2021. People are awakening. That's why I say, if you look at the worst cost of living crisis, I mean, the NERSA increased lately in almost 19%. Can you believe this? The ANC and, and Ramaphosa saying his hands are tied and then he says, uh, holds back, uh, tells Nelsa uh, to hold back. This is why I believe it is largely those factors which is going to drive the ANC, to my mind, <coughs> to below 50% and even 40 to 45%, you know, uh, in next year's election. I mean, uh, people have never been more angry, believe me. Did you see how civil society mobilized? behind the rejection of the NERSA increase, like it has never mobilized in, in, in post-apartheid South Africa. That's what happened when this uh, NERSA increased. And I think that's why Ramaphosa reacted 
uh, quickly and, and, and ask NERSA not to proceed with the 1st April mm. increase mm. of Rukos, Rukos, I want to bring you back into this conversation. We have elections coming up next year. We spoke about bricks versus the ballot earlier on. You hear now Dr. Harvey speaking about what's happening in the townships and what we've been seeing in municipalities. I often made an argument that South Africans don't necessarily attach the local government elections to their real lived issues. Mm. I imagine that we're going to see a very different picture come 2024. You're hearing about it from all manner of pundits that next year we might see a very different outcome and the NC is likely to go under 50%. Do you actually see South Africans, do you actually see see it translating to the ballot what's happening with the protest protests as you said have been with us for a very long time that is yeah. our language it's never fully translated to the general elections yeah. do you see that happening yes I'm, i i think i'm one of the few people who does not believe that it's going to translate as dramatically as people kind of account for so south africa's always had a there's always been a narrative of antagonism towards the states and this is not like a pro-ANC thing in any way. People have been angry with the ANC for many, many years now. Mm. We've had multiple different flashpoints of anger against the state. Um, it's not just NERSA. It's not just what's happening now. It has been happening over the last 15, 20 years at this point. But there's no clear indication that the amount of anger, because like, you can't really measure that, but the amount of anger in the country has equated to a precipitous drop in ANC electoral outcomes at a national level. At a national level, the ANC's outcomes are steadily decreasing. It's not an exponential drop. That's what you would expect, that, that anger kind of rumbles around and therefore it one year it is 2%, the next year it's 5%, the next year it's 8%. It is quite constant around that 2 to 3% mm. marker, right? And if we use that type of logic, the idea is that the ANC will most likely get just over 50 or just under 50 and even if they get just under 50 it doesn't mean they're out of power mm -mm. they'll just find a small party absolutely and then regain the majority right so i i i don't think there's any evidence to show us that there's going to be a 10 percent. now i'll eat my words on this station <laughs> if that's what happens <laughs> but there's no evidence to show us at least quantitatively to show us that this number will drop dramatically from 53 percent to 45 or 44 um, I think it will get to 50, 51. If we get over 49, there's nothing to celebrate. You haven't gotten the ANC out. And mm. that becomes the bigger question. There's still 49% of eligible voters who are actually voting who are saying, we still want this party in control. The real question then becomes, how is it possible with all this anger, all the protests, that not a single opposition party has been able to capitalize? Dr. Harvey, I want to bring you in on that as far as opposition is concerned. For me, with the EFF talk, it's already succeeded in that it's captured the imagination of South Africans. Whether they actually take to the streets, take to the streets in large numbers, shut down streets, is almost neither here nor there for me. But you want to compare that to the ANC, which seems to treat ANC fumbles, mishaps, errors, um, failures with kid gloves because you compare to 2021 and the heart of 2021 lies with the ANC. Um, I think I'm, I'm speaking about too many, too many things in one idea, too many ideas in one question, but I just want you to weigh in on the EFF first. I'll come back to the 2021 question properly. No, uh, did you hear Mbeki? Mbeki was interviewed in at some event and they asked him about the, the EFF submarch. He had the right response. He never went on the way the, the, the new uh, general secretary, Fikile Mbalula, went on uh, and, uh, about the EFF. He said simply, correctly, he said, no, people have a right to protest and demonstrate. So long as it is not violent, etc., it must proceed. So this is what you need. This is my stance. 
Um, but I can tell you now, uh, Malema and the EF have an, have an agenda. That, that decision for this shutdown, look, there's objective reasons, there's no doubt. You know, and I think Becky recognized that there are countless reasons for, I mean, we have- There are legitimate causes to, to demonstrate. There are problems in the country, yes. Yeah, we were faced with the worst socioeconomic crisis ever at the moment. So, you know, uh, to call attention and a shutdown, I, I support that type of thing. But, but no doubt it's going to have massive economic consequences. But the right to strike, you know, whether it's EFF or whatever, I mean, the Constitution protects that right. I mean, it's yes. Becky, basically. I you don't know? even know. Uh, I don't even know if the question is whether there's the right to demonstrate or not. I think the biggest issue is a threat of violence. The biggest issue is a threat of the state machinery being used against the EFF. And I think from a, an observer's point of view, the EFF success was capturing people's imagination. We are talking about the shutdown that we know nothing about. I've asked Julius to give me details of how it will unfold, and there's really no answer as yet. Yeah, but you know, the thing is, let me tell you what I think lies behind this. Although there are objective grounds for, for uh, 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 strike action and other demonstrations, that people are really... It's the worst situation that they faced ever in post-apartheid at the moment. But I think there's, there are some ulterior strategic motives behind Malema and the EFF's uh, uh, shutdown on Monday, really. And I think it lies with, they're looking at 2024. They're looking at 2024. And I argue, I mean, I hear what, what has been said now. I think really... Uh, you, you, you are underestimating what we faced with here. Go and see what has happened to Kosatu. Kosatu has completely changed. There's no, both the president and Kosatu says this thing about supporting Ramaphosa again, and even the ANC next year is another matter. They, they want the SACP to, a whole lot of things are happening. I think there's a gross underestimation of the forces at work, at the countervailing forces, which can take the AC considerably below 50. And really, I don't want to get into that now, but back to Malema. Malema knows that the ANC is going to drop below 50. He is looking at himself and the EFF in a national coalition government and his place in that government. That is partly what is behind the strategic considerations for the shutdown. Malema, he knows the ANC is in very, very serious trouble. And, uh, you know, uh, I think he's got an eye on, on, on next year. And, and, and that this is calculated to make a formidable impact with this thing to, 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 to facilitate and to lead towards, uh, you know, a groundswell of st struggle and sustained protests in the run-up to the 2024 elections. Mm, it does sound like you're seeking relevance. Because of it, I, want, I want to wrap up, but I want you to talk to me about the predictions. What are you, what is what is what is the research showing you about our protest culture going forward? Yeah, so I think uh, protests will continue in the country. So that's a given. Um, and protests yes. will increase in intensity. There's no evidence to show us that any particular work is being done to essentially reduce the amount of protests happening in the country. And again, that comes back to communities viewing protests as a valid uh, democratic tool to utilize. The best way to see it is the only way you can decrease protest activity within the country is if you increase public participation in political processes meant to include citizens as well as then act on what citizens talk about. So technically on paper, our participatory system, uh, system of governance is one of the best in the world on paper. 
Yes. Technically, it should be functioning really well. But there's this question of accountability of the, even if we go to a meeting and we discuss and we say, there's these issues in my community and that system, that meeting is designed really well to get all our voices out, to get them translated into what we hope is government work. If the government then doesn't do it, there's no accountability mechanism created in such a way that we can then hold you accountable. Right. So at the next meeting, you're not there because you're not good at your job. Right. We, we're replacing you with someone else. Right. Mm. So there's no accountability. And that little fault means that the quickest way to see accountability or action for utilizing a democratic process is not actually participating in these meetings. It's actually just going to the street. And so long as that element of accountability is lost, people will then look for the mechanism where they can physically see change a lot quicker or at least physically see the fear of God's eyes, like just the fear of God in someone's eyes, essentially. Mm. And if you don't sort that out, and that accountability comes back to our country was never designed for one party to win multiple elections. Like our democratic power sharing sharing has to be a thing. We also need to get our political parties knowing how to do coalition governments. But that's a conversation for another day. We need an enforcement law. They are (laughs) reckless with our metros. Dr. Harvey, I also want to uh, wrap up with you very quickly, but I want you to weigh in as you wrap up on the increasing role of the SANDF in dealing with uh, protests in the country. Should we not be concerned as citizens about this picture that's unfolding? Whenever the defense force in any country in the world, and this is born out of historical uh, experience, when the army is drawn into a, a, a repression or to suppress uh, uprisings or struggles, you know, it's a very serious and ominous indicator, you know, because generally that is uh, what the police force is meant uh, to, to primarily uh, address. So uh, I, I really think there's some serious red flags, you know, all around we have the army being mobilized, you know, to, 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 uh, protest spots, you know, no matter how combustible they are. And I think that's the temptation of the state is to draw the army in when you have very fierce and combustible protests and strike actions. But I I think it's it's short-sighted because it can lead to many things. You know, it could actually escalate militancy. That's the other thing. If you look at what happened in the July 2021 uh, thing, uh, you know, we have a very violent history in this country. People forget that. And the violence that you see in the townships must be seen within the context that Africa is born with violence from the Mineral Revolution, 1850s, right up until now. We've got a terribly violent country in every respect, you know, and I think it mm. informs this. people are, are down in the gutters, the uh, conditions of life are as, as terrible as they are. Then uh, I think their struggles become more combustible, you know. And uh, But to drawing the army, honestly, it's very unwise, you know, um, thing to do. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Ibrahim Harvey as well as Rukhoto Fetsi Chikani speaking to us about our protest culture as a nation. Thank you so much to both my guests. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with you next week. This podcast was produced by Kamakwini Mavovana and Duduzile Masuku. For Eyewitness News, my name is Tidi Madia.